Welcome to Writing the Past, a space where historical fiction writers share their experiences and advice on bringing the past to life. I'm your host, Megan Douglas. Hello everyone and welcome back. You may have noticed a slight change to the introduction of this episode in that I introduced myself as your host, Megan Douglas, not Isla Finn. Now this is because I've recently taken the decision to rebrand and to publish under my own maiden name instead of using a pen name. And I feel a lot of writers do use pen names, for example, if they're writing across different age groups or different genres, or they really want to keep things separate from their work. But I was recently reflecting and I realized that actually a lot of these reasons don't really apply to me personally as much as I thought they did. And so I've taken the decision to rebrand. So if there was a bit of a confusion there, that's why. But from now on, you will be seeing me as Megan Douglas. And you can now access the website via megandouglasauthor.com. And on social media, you can find me via Megan Douglas underscore author. So I hope that just clarifies all of that. And now let's just jump into the episode. In this episode, we'll be speaking with Graham Johncock, a writer and storyteller. He's also the creator of Scotland Stories, sharing tales from Scottish folklore and history and exploring all that the country has to offer, accompanied by his beautiful Labrador, Molly, of course. Graham, it's so great to have you with us today. It's lovely to be here. It's my pleasure. I've always enjoyed tuning in to the daily stories you share on Instagram, so it's great to have you on the podcast. And I thought to kick things off, what first made you want to be a storyteller and also to tell stories from Scotland in particular? I mean, the thing is, everybody loves stories in some sort of way, regardless of what it is. And it might sound very sort of generic and typically Scottish, but I vividly remember watching Braveheart when I was like 10 years old and that was pretty much it I was obsessed with history like that was what I think kicked everything off and then I remember borrowing one of my dad's Bernard Cornwall sharp books and like that was it historical fiction was basically the only thing I read for well until like now but that's it so I went and did history at uni and graduated but hated it and that was I think the point that I realized that it's not so much like the analytical history side that I enjoy, it's the stories. And, you know, studying it academically can kind of suck a bit of the fun out of the stories. I was always told I had a bit of a, a way with words, so, I don't know, storytelling kind of comes naturally. But this entire thing, I don't think it was ever really planned, it was kind of a happy accident. And I just, I'm one of those people who, anywhere I go, anywhere with friends, I'm the one that's like, oh, have you heard that Castle's Haunted? Or... There's a Kelpie in that loch, and I'm an annoying person. And that's the thing about Scotland, I think, is that there are stories everywhere. You know, it's not just the big castles and monuments that everybody sees. It's like every town, village, glen, loch, every nook and cranny has a tale to tell. And that's the thing that sort of connects us with the past. And obviously being Scottish, that's kind of where I'm drawn. You know, it makes something that you maybe you look at anything that's just a pile of rubble. And, you know, you hear a story about it and it turns it, your imagination can turn it into something sort of extraordinary. But it's not just, I don't just do sort of legends and folklore. There's a lot of factual, historical stories as well. And throughout all this, what I came to realise is that just because we don't believe, or maybe you do, a lot of people don't believe there are fairies under a hill or, or a ghost haunting an old church, it doesn't make it a fictional story. You know, the important thing for us to remember is that people who lived hundreds of years ago, they truly believed that story. And I think, especially when it comes to writing historical fiction, that kind of thing, it's important to remember that, you know, those people, that is an insight into their 
belief and customs and I mean yeah living in Scotland it is literally sort of all around us. I've loved following that on your account and seeing all of these amazing stories and it seems like every place as you say really does have a story and even if it's not real to us now it was real to people then so it's, it's yeah. really important to know that and understand that definitely and could you tell us a bit about what your journey was like towards creating what is now Scotland's stories? Yeah I mean it was like a lockdown project, I think. It wasn't even really a project. It was just a way of spending all that extra time that everybody seemed to have in 2020. And I just started putting up a few sort of big stories that everybody's heard of. You know, some of the better known Scottish legends that were in my head. And I just put them on Instagram. No real expectation of what was going to happen. And I was so embarrassed by it, I didn't tell anybody. I didn't even tell my flatmates for months. It was this big secret. I felt like I was living a double life. And then suddenly it just sort of started growing. And I think there are thousands of people who they'd had, you know, their annual trip to Scotland or they'd been planning a trip to Scotland for years and it was cancelled. And suddenly everybody's stuck inside their home every single day. And Scotland's stories kind of became a way for people to virtually travel. And that was it. You know, I started off sort of putting a poster two up and then a few weeks later I put another one and it was really sporadic until I remember we could finally go outside and I went on a trip to the northwest, me and the dog, and just saw loads of interesting places and I was like there are stories everywhere here like, I'm going to take this a bit more seriously and from then on put a story out every single morning and in my head I kind of thought six months down the line I'm going to have to start repeating some of the stories and I was totally wrong I mean I'm out it's been something like over 500 stories now that I've told on there and it is nowhere near running out you know I haven't even got out to some of the islands to tell some of their stories it's just it is huge, the potential. So from there it went from, you know, it was a wee Instagram hobby to my full-time job. And I kind of decided to take the plunge last year. Quit a steady salary. It was slowly destroying my soul and put all of my energy into doing this. I was quite lucky that I already had a couple of magazines and blogs and things. So bringing a little bit of money so I wasn't just like completely bankrupt, even though I was living on beans and toast for a while. But I knew, you know, if you don't try now, then you're going to just totally miss the boat. And I always wonder, you know, what might have happened. So, yeah, so that's, that's what I've been doing. And it's sort of grown from there. And, you know, I've survived this long. I must, hopefully I'm doing something right. I think you definitely are. And I mean, you've built such a big following online now. It's definitely resonating. So whatever you're doing, keep doing it. <laughs> and also, I'd love to know which locations in Scotland, I mean, you said yourself, there's so many stories in so many locations. Like, this is probably quite a difficult question, but which locations in Scotland inspire you the most as a storyteller and why? See, I was thinking about that and you're like, yeah, there are so many places. It's hard to pick, but I think recently I was up doing sort of around Caithness and Sutherland in the very, very far north of Scotland. And we're walking down to a place called Owsdale Broch. And a broch is like a 2,000-year-old stone tower that nobody really knows much about. So it is pretty fascinating. But on the way there, there's remains of this old road. At one point, it was the only way in and out of Caithness. And you can still sort of make out the camber and a couple of rutted tracks, or it's all covered in heather now. And that was pretty incredible to me to think, stand in the middle of that and think, you know, there was, I know stories about, you know, a Scottish army that marched its way to face some Scandinavians. And a group of Sinclairs on the way coming the other direction down to fight the Battle of Flodden. It's, you know, it's things like that that kind of bring it more to life. There's another place on the west coast called Castle Cheerham, 
and it's in an area known as the Rough Bounds. Like it's very sort of, you know, it's all very, everything's very evocative out there. And it's at the end of this very long, winding, single track road. And there's basically, there's nothing else there. So there's never really many people there. If you're going down there, you're going to see this castle because, you know, that is it. Or you live there, which, you know, one of the two or three houses. And the first time I went, I camped with Molly, the dog, on the beach. We had the whole place ourselves all evening and overnight. And I already knew some good stories from there. But, you know, just being able to sit there with a dram, the sun goes down and look around and you can, your mind just sees it all. You know, you can see the burling, the ships rowing up the loch, landing at the foot of the castle, you know, all you can hear are birds and water. And it's basically, it's like pure inspiration. If you can bottle that, if you had the opportunity to just go and sit there and write every day, I think you would, you know, you'd get an awful lot done. Or you might get nothing done because you're just looking at the scenery, I don't know. I think it's true, it must really bring history to life when you're in a space like that, where you're so almost detached from civilization. Yeah, you're kind of almost cut off from everything else and you just have all of this stuff. There's like a little, there's a house down there that I think somebody lives in, I don't actually know, and I was just looking at it thinking that would be the best writer's retreat ever to have 100%. that. And I was like, that's, I would go there, I would live there. Yeah, that's the place to be. Yeah, if we're all struggling with the distractions of everyday life, we know where to go now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Especially because you get no phone signals, so you're, you're, yeah. never, you're like, not distracted. I can't go on Instagram even if I want to. Exactly. <laughs> no, for sure. And. So you've been on, of course, like a lot of trips around Scotland and you've uncovered the most incredible and mysterious stories along the way. And a lot of people who are listening to this will be authors. And I was just wondering, like, what advice would you give to people who maybe want to go on research trips to inform their writing? Because historical fiction especially, it often helps to go and see places. And you've been on quite a few trips yourself. So just wondering if you have any tips. I go on a lot of trips. A lot of them I don't really know I'm going to see until I get there. My Google Maps is covered in pins of thousands of places, some of which I've forgotten why I pinned it in the first place because it's been so long. But I think first off, it's just you read everything. And that's it. I find some stories in the strangest places. And anything, you know, like little throwaway comments or little things somebody says, you know, I'll put it in my phone. And it's my phone is full of hundreds of like wee snippets that I heard somewhere. And I might just say, Selkie's grave, Castletown. And when I'm planning a trip, I'll look through and I'll figure out what might be to see in the area, roughly where I'm going to go. Sometimes it pays off, you get there, and I'll cover this whole story. Sometimes what you read, it might just be a load of rubbish that somebody's made up or they've misunderstood or, you know, it might be a dead end. You never know, but that's it, I just think. People always ask me where I find stories, and that's it. It's literally everywhere, and then, you know, a bit of research later, but... The other thing I think when you are doing a trip is just to not be afraid to go off course. Like if I'm driving along and I see a brown tourist sign and it says something chapel or somewhere castle and I've got the time, I'll just follow it. You know, you just drive along and sometimes there's something incredible at the end. And the worst case scenario is you end up on a wee mini adventure down some back roads and you end up back where you started. But I remember I was on my way looking for like a specific Celtic cross in Argyll and I drove past this wee car park that just said historic Kilbride. And I was like, never heard of that before. That like didn't see that in the map when I was planning this trip. And I pulled in anyway, and it was incredible. Like it was the ruins of this wee chapel. It had been at one point it was a burial place for chiefs of the clan MacDougall. And there's just there were loads of stories packed in there, including the like there's like a guy who got buried, he had two hearts, Johnny Two Hearts. I don't know. Nobody knows if it's true or not, but that's what people called him. And on his grave there is an inscription with two hearts. I ended up writing a whole blog post on that place that I'd never heard of 
just because I stopped and it was, you know, it was fascinating. And yeah, you're probably not going to listen to it, but a shout out to Liam, who lives on site and was happy to show me around. <laughs> and I think that kind of probably brings me to my last bit of advice is just like speak to people when you're anywhere. You know, he was actually on his way back into his house and I had said, you know, I was a writer, you know, just looking for some local stories. And if I hadn't said that, you know, he never would have stopped and showed me around. And it's one of the things is people are almost always happy to share things that they know. And, you know, you might be surprised. Some of the tales they'll have to tell will be ones that aren't written down anywhere. It's something that granny told them or something that happened to their granny. And, you know, it gives a great insight into that sort of, that area and how people, yeah, how people used to live. Yeah, that's really helpful. I think you're right. It's being open-minded and maybe not thinking I have to do this thing and this thing, but being open. And if there's people in the area who want to talk or if there's a sign leading in a different direction to follow that and that's explore. It. Honestly, you just have to go everywhere and you like might see a spire in a distance and just think, what the hell is that? And you just head off, find it. And sometimes, yeah, they are the best, the best places that you find. So many hidden gems for sure. So also, you've built a really strong following on your blog and on social media. Do you have any tips for writers who want to build a strong online presence? I have absolutely no idea why anybody wants to listen to me. Honestly, it's one of those things that, I don't know, all I can think of is that I'm not trying to be something that I'm not. I'm not trying to be a brand. Like There are some lovely people who supported me from very early on. And I don't really see people as like followers in quotation marks. Like audience is a better term for it. So no, I connect with them. I feel like I know the vast majority of people. I mean, I don't know like all thousands of people, but everybody that anybody that messaged me, anybody that comments on a post, you know, you see the same people every single day. I don't know. I think it's only fair to reply. I see a lot of people that don't connect with anybody. It's just I don't know. They punt things out and leave it. But if somebody's taking the time to read what I've written and care enough to write something to me, I think it's the very least I can do is reply, even if it's just a smiley face. Don't know. I think, aside from that side of things, is when you're starting up, or I suppose any time, having a niche within a niche is important. And it means people know what they're going to get, they know roughly what to expect, and I'll convince them to stick around and see what's coming next. You know, if somebody's all over the place, they've really probably got no idea. You know, it doesn't make people want to stay because you know the next thing you know they might be waiting another two weeks for something that's relevant to them so like scotland is my niche but that's still pretty general and there are thousands of other accounts with much better photography than i could ever put up but scottish stories is my niche within that niche and i think so well apart from that just showing up showing up regularly is important and you know i still have i've got the odd day when i don't post anything Generally, people know if they wake up in the morning, make a cup of coffee and open up Instagram after sort of nine o'clock UK time, then they're going to have a wee daily dose of Scotland in the form of a story there. And that, you know, encourages people to come back. The other thing, the last thing, and probably the most important thing actually, is to not get so caught up in this whole social media, like, well, like fest. Everybody's obsessed with likes and comments and all that sort of stuff and obviously you know you need to grow you need that interaction and stuff but i mean i have stuff that just you know i'll put something out and it might get 
3,000, 4,000 likes and comments and messages and all that sort of stuff. And then I'll put something else out that I think is really good. And it's like 800. Like, it just dies. And for a while, that was very upsetting because, you know, you see this growth and you want it to keep going up and up and up and up forever. But then actually you think, it doesn't matter. Like, I write something because I enjoy it. And I write something, doesn't matter, I think it's good. And a lot of other people, you know, well, 800 people clearly also think it's good. That should be enough. It's the same, anytime I do... Obviously, I do a lot of written stuff. Sometimes I do, I sit in my chair with a whiskey and I tell a story, you know, somewhere between sort of five, ten minutes long. And because of the way Instagram works, that always does badly, you know, in terms of things. It always gets like a quarter of the engagement everything else gets. But I enjoy doing it. And I know that a lot of people really, really, they enjoy that way more than, than the pictures and stuff. So I put it out and I never expect it to do well. And I'm never disappointed because it's just something I like doing and it's you know I think that's important do things that you enjoy doing and you know, you'll never come across as something you're not. I think that's really good advice being true to who we are and also just really nurturing those genuine connections as you say I think that's so so important and on this Instagram you share the most fascinating stories from Scottish folklore and history as we've said and I was wondering do you have a favorite story that you would potentially be willing to share with us now just to give us a bit of a taster of the kind of stories you're sharing? Yeah I will Keep away from anything too sort of long and too fanciful, since I know obviously most of your listeners are serious history buffs, not obsessed with fairies and bogles. So this is a story about somewhere that's become, it's a bit of a photographer's pilgrimage in recent years, and it's actually, it won my unofficial World Cup of Scottish Castles two years in a row. It's also, it's become one of the most commonly mispronounced names in Scotland. So you might hear it called Kilchurn Castle. But Scottish place names are a minefield, so yeah, I wouldn't want to hold that against anybody. Also, this story, it sounds like it comes right from an incredible, like, this historical fiction novel or film. So, I think, if anybody draws any inspiration from it, then I am expecting some credit in your acknowledgements page. But anyway, so, Kilhurn Castle rises up out of the waters of Loch Awe. It's one of the most atmospheric ruins in Scotland. Originally, it was a simple tower house on a little island built by the Campbells just as the clan were becoming a major force in Scotland. And then over the years, Clan Campbell, it grew in stature. The island grew into a peninsula. The water level in the loch was dropped. And this breathtaking setting, it needs an equally breathtaking story. And this, So this legend goes right back to the man who built the castle in the 15th century. That man was Colin Campbell of Glenorchy famous crusader nicknamed the Black Knight of Rhodes. And while Colin was away fighting in the Holy Land, he had a strange dream about his home and it troubled him deeply. So he consulted a priest, put his mind at ease over this vivid dream, but the priest looked at him gravely and he told Colin, you better race home to Kilhurn Castle immediately to avert a disaster for both you and your family. Now, Colin had been away from Scotland for about seven years. But he'd been sending regular letters to update his wife, Lady Margaret. Unfortunately, in Colin's absence, his rival, the Baron McCorkadale, had intercepted the messengers and destroyed the letters. And with Colin away for so long, no word ever reaching the castle, the Baron had managed to convince Margaret that her husband had died in the fighting. And it's, you know, it was a dangerous time for a widow to hold on to the newly built Kilcuran castle. And the Baron offered Margaret protection through marriage, and reluctantly she conceded. Colin, he arrived home on the very same day the wedding was to be held. But in his rush, he hadn't brought any fine clothes, he hadn't cleaned himself up. Nobody was going to believe it if he just strolled in and declared himself. 
And besides, the Baron's soldiers were there standing guard outside, so they are going to drag him off and kill him if they knew his real identity. So instead, Colin played the part of a beggar, and he was allowed to join the feast as an act of charity to celebrate the special day. And now he was inside, he noticed more of his clansmen were in there, scattered around the room. They were enough to take care of the Baron's troops. He just had to make sure that they would all recognise him in his unkempt state after seven years of hard fighting. So Colin, he ate the food offered, but he declared he would only be served as drink by the lady of the house. And bemused, Lady Margaret agrees and handed this hooded stranger a goblet. Colin drained it in one, hands it back to her with a special ring dropped inside. And this was the talisman, the gift Margaret had given him when he left to keep him safe. And obviously she gasped as she realised who was standing in front of her. And Colin throws back his cloak, stands tall with his wife beside him. She declared her husband had returned and the Campbell clansmen were they sprung into action. And cheering, they chased the Baron and his men out of Kilhurn Castle and the wedding feast was put to better use to celebrate their laird's return. That's amazing. That's like something straight out of a film. I love it. Why that was never an episode of Game of Thrones, I don't know. So true. So true. Maybe, yeah, maybe someone listening will be able to do something with this. If a famous film producer is listening to this, we're just going to put that out there. This would be a great story. Yeah. Yeah. It's Graham with an A-E. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. We'll make sure you get full credit and 50% of the commission, 50% commission on everything. <laughs> Definitely. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. And finally, could you just tell us what you're looking forward to in the coming months, if you have any upcoming projects or anything like that that we can keep an eye out for? I mean, I've got lots of little things. Visit Scotland's Year of Scotland Stories. So there's lots of little things going on that, sort of articles to write and a couple of videos and things to do. But the big thing I want to get done in the next few months is to publish a collection of stories. So... Yeah, I've read plenty of books on folklore legends and battles and all that sort of stuff. I've never found one that ticks all the boxes for me. So that is the plan. I've essentially got, you know, a draft already written in all the stories I've already told. But yeah, if there are any publishers listening out there, just send me an email because I have absolutely no idea what I'm doing here. But in the long run, I actually do have plans to do a proper historical fiction someday. Like I've got ideas of novels bubbling away somewhere. I just need to find the time to write them down, I think. Yeah, that sounds great. Well, I can't wait to read all of them. Keep me posted with how it goes and I can do a shout out on this podcast when it's out. Excellent. Yeah, I'll come back. Yeah, we can do an update. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I can't wait. Well, Graham, thank you so much for taking the time to share your insights on writing the past. And if anyone listening would like to keep in touch with Graham, you can follow him on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook under the username Scotland Stories. And you can also visit his website and blog at scotlands-stories.com and sign up to his newsletter. And I'll leave all the links in the episode description. The next episode will be with Susan Stokes Chapman, the author of the Sunday Times bestseller Pandora, and we'll talk about her novel as well as all things writing and querying historical fiction and more. But until then, thanks again for tuning in and don't forget to like and review this podcast if you enjoyed it and we'll be back with another episode very soon. Mm -hmm.